Section four of Members of the Family by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three In the Back Force, as you may know, is like the king and never dies. It endlessly transmits itself through the same or some other shape. Drop a stone in a pond, and the wave-rings may seem to expire as they widen, but they do not. Through friction or impact or something, they merely become invisible. You can stop a cannon-ball, but you cannot kill its speed. Its speed is immortal and undergoes instant resurrection, taking the new shape of heat. The cannonball becomes red-hot and sends heat-waves off into infinity. Scientific men have told you all this as they have told me, and judging from the delightful events which I shall proceed to narrate, I should not wonder if the scientific men were right. 1. THE STORING OF THE ENERGY Once upon a time the army had a wet-nurse instead of a secretary of war. The nurse fed our soldiers upon speeches, milk and sugar speeches, all over the country. He told them he was going to right their wrongs. Now, as they didn't know that they had any wrongs, this both surprised and pleased them. They liked to hear him inform them that it was they who from the first had won our battles upon land and sea. Who, he would ask rhetorically, who endured the bitter cold, the frozen snow, at Valley Forge? And, as they hadn't the slightest idea, what more agreeable than to learn it was themselves? Let us honor George Washington, he would exclaim. Let us not forget that great and good man, but let us remember also the honest soldier without whose aid George Washington could never have deriven the British triumph from our beloved shores of freedom. He always spoke of the honest soldier, and therefore the average enlisted man very naturally felt that somehow George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and Ulysses Grant were all well enough in their way, but that you must keep your eye on them, and that the secretary was the man to put them in their proper place. The secretary quite rightly omitted to state that generals are apt to carry a responsibility which would iron the average enlisted man flatter than a pair of pressed trousers. He omitted this statement because it would have been the whole truth, and the whole truth is often very tiresome, particularly for a politician. Do not, as you read this, think evil of the secretary. He had a large family of daughters and sons with whom he was frequently photographed, seated on the vine-clad porch of the old white homestead, and these photographs were at once widely given to the public press. Moreover, his private life was known to be chased by every lady in the land, though how they ascertained this I am at a loss to explain. He was also a highly gifted man, gifted with a voice that matches a political frock-coat. At will he could make this so impressive that if he remarked it was a fine day, for the time of year, it convinced the audience that something of the utmost importance had been announced. He was gifted, too, with a face impervious to vulgar scrutiny. 
and he had the most deeply religious chin-beard in Applejack County. I have already mentioned that he possessed the gift of tears when such phenomenon was timely, and besides all these things he owned some extensive salt marshes on a bay. These were too wet for private persons to buy, but he was going to be happy to sell them to the government for a naval station when he should be senator after his present office had expired. Meanwhile he went about busily with his basket, collecting popularity from the humblest dumping lot. If there was one kind of audience that the secretary liked above all others, it was an audience of fresh, bright, brave young recruits. He missed no chance to tell them so. Their earnest faces, he was apt to say, if there was a flag anywhere in sight, stirred his heart more, much more, than the stars upon Old Glory waving yonder. Then he would point to Old Glory, and get results from the gallery as satisfactory as any actor could wish. Indeed, the secretary could have made the drama as lucrative as he made politics. He could tell a story and make you laugh tell another and make you cry, and a really excellent second-rate actor was lost in him. In the good old days of which I write, many of our political patriots resembled the secretary. Recruits after his own heart sat close before him one afternoon at McPherson, gathered from various southern states. Let those young men come up front he had commanded from the platform in his deepest frock-coat basso, let them see me and let me see them. We understand each other, for we are comrades. Accordingly, the recruits occupied the front benches, while the moustache of Captain Stone, who sat in the rear of the hall, began to look like the back of a dog's neck when the dog is not pleased. The captain took down one leg that had been crossed over the other, and began sliding one hand up and down the yellow stripe of his trousers. To his brother officers, and to his favorite sergeant, Jones, this hand-sliding was another sign, like the singular behavior of the moustache. Nobody knew whether it was the hair itself that rose, or whether he did it with his upper lip but when the whole thing stood straight out beyond his nose, everybody knew at a hundred yards' range what it meant, no matter how it was done. It was the hurricane signal, and you steered your course accordingly. "'You never'll get a better captain, Jock,' Sergeant Jones would often remark to Corporal Cumner, "'but you want to catch his profile at morning stables. If the moustache is merely standing attention, clear weathers to be looked for. But if she's deployed in extended order of skirmish line, don't you go nowheres without your slicker. On the present occasion, the sergeant was also in the hall listening to the secretary. To him had fallen the responsibility of conducting some of the recruits to Fort Chiricahua in Arizona, to which post they had been assigned. Captain Stone was on leave, and had no responsibilities whatever, until in a few weeks he should return to that same post, after a honeymoon which he and his bride were completing by a visit to the lady's parents. She was a pastor's daughter, and played the melodeon. 
We are comrades," repeated the Secretary of War to the recruits, "and that means you and I are going to stand by each other through thick and thin." It sounded so well that the recruits all cheered. The captain's mustache lifted a couple of hairs more. Sergeant Jones, in another part of the hall, whispered to himself two words which I cannot repeat, and the Secretary looked about to see if there was a flag anywhere convenient for his popular climax about earnest faces and the stars in old glory. But there was no flag, and he therefore selected another of the many strings to his oratorical bow. He gave them his great What I Am For speech, the speech which had brought the gallery down at Albany on Decoration Day had caught the crowd at Terre Haute on the 4th of July, swept Minneapolis on Labor Day, and turned Dallas, Texas, hoarse on Washington's birthday. In it, the secretary asked, What am I for? And then answered the question. He was to watch over the enlisted man. He was to be his father and protect him from military tyranny. Superior officers were to cease their despotic methods. Was this not a republic where one man was as good as another? The very term, superior officer, was repugnant to the American idea, and no offender of any grade should hide behind it as long as he was Secretary of War. To hear him you would have supposed that until he stepped into the cabinet the slave under the lash knew a better lot than the American soldier. To be sure, he did not always say these remarkable things in the same way. At Boston, for instance, he would draw it milder than at Billings, Montana. At Boston, he mentioned other duties of the Secretary of War besides that of tucking the enlisted man in his bed every night. But he seldom spoke in Boston, because he preferred a warm heart-to-heart -heart audience. He knew at sight that he had one here. His practiced eye ran the recruits over and read their wholesome, vacant, up-country faces, noted their big, rosy wrists, appraised their untrained, juicy agricultural shapelessness as they sat beneath him like rows of cantaloupes and watermelons. With such innocence as this, he knew that he could spread it thick, and very soon after the preliminary details about his always having cherished a peculiar affection for this part of the country, and how General Lee had had no warmer admirer than himself, he was spreading it unmistakably thick. By the time he had informed them that it was not colonels and generals to whom he bowed the knee, but the enlisted man, the so-called common soldier, whose bleeding feet had blazed the trail for liberty with fearless shouts of triumph, Sergeant Jones was muttering to his neighbor, How long more do you figure he'll slobber? And the captain's mustache was standing out from his face like a shelf. That is what I am for perorated the wet-nurse. I am for the enlisted man. The country looks to our beloved president, but you look to me. Go forth, young men, for I am behind every one of you. No so-called military regulations 
shall insult your american manhood or grind you down while i stand sentinel at my post if you are troubled come to me and you shall have your rights go forth then you who outshine their vaunted caesars their licentious alexanders their pagan plutos and aspasias go forth to be the bulwarks and imperishable heroes of our glorious country the watermelons cheered the wet nurse stepped down to let them shake his hand and captain stone went home with his bride in a speechless rage he was able to speak presently still joshua she mildly insisted young soldiers have so many sad temptations i am glad he has their welfare at heart nonsense gwendolen said the captain you'll soon know the army and you'll see then that such talk as his merely turns contented men into discontented babies nobody could ever be discontented with you joshua i am sure the bride with sweet emotion murmured she was nineteen the captain was forty-five and upon gazing at the rosy cheeks of his gwendolen he would frequently assert that a man was always as young as he felt the secretary after inspecting the military post dined with the mayor of the neighboring town at this meal when a cold bottle had been finished the mayor went so far as to inquire say um, who was aspasia but the secretary answered what a wonderful land is ours and what a beautiful city is yours two the energy is transmitted the expectations of sergeant jones were entirely unfulfilled much experience in taking charge of recruits upon long railway journeys had taught him that their earnest faces were not always more stirring than the stars upon old glory he knew that you do not invariably find that sort of face for thirteen dollars a month he had generally been obliged to watch their purchases at way-stations he had not seldom been forced to remove bottles of strong spirits from their possession and he had almost always found it necessary to teach some of them a lesson in obedience judge therefore of the sergeant's amazement when after the first half-day of journey a long overgrown ruddy boy approached him and asked in unsoiled southern accents please sir can we sing sing said jones sing what pull for the shore sailor we have learned to do it in parts back in our home yes said jones i, I guess you can sing that in parts or as a whole we sing it as a whole in parts sir explained the recruit with simplicity your name uh, aniston jones inquired abruptly suspicious bateau sir the honoredest bateau my cousin xerxes aniston sits over yonder by the water cooler oh said jones yes sir xerx he sings bass in our choir back in our home sister smith who said the sergeant 
Sister Smith, sir, the wife of our minister, Tullius C. Smith. Oh, said the sergeant. She is leader of our choir back in our home. She is our best soprano, Sister Mingory is our best alto, and Brother Macon Lafayette Young gets two notes lower than any of our basses. He keeps the choicest grocery in town and is president of our YMCA. You'd ought to heard our quartet in the prayer from Moses in Egypt arranged by Sister Mingory last Easter Sunday. The thoroughly good heart of Jones now warmed to this recruit. I cannot hope that you will remember Jones. He was Specimen Jones long ago, before he joined the army. Some of his doings are chronicled elsewhere. He is an old member of the family. Made Moses hum, did ya? said he. I'll bet the girls would sooner have a solo from you than from Brother What's-His-Name Lafayette. Sister Smith, replied Leonidas, blushing like the innocent watermelon that he was, did say that she couldn't see how they were going to get along without my upper register. Jones settled back in his seat. Sing away, said he. Many songs were sung through Alabama and Louisiana and Texas, virtuous songs with no offending or even convivial word, and none so frequently demanded by the passengers as a solo from Leonidas, How little do I love this veil of tears, through which the chorus crooned a murmuring accompaniment. West of San Antonio they played a game of riddles, and when Cousin Xerxes, who seemed the wit of the party, asked, Why is Das a solo like Texas? Because it's all in flats. And the recruits were convulsed with merriment by this. Sergeant Jones, listening to them in his seat behind, muttered with compassion, Their mothers could hear every word they say. The friendliness was established between him and the recruits. They confided many things to him. Yes, not a drop of vice's poison flowed in them, but at El Paso, while they waited, Leonidas, on saying to Jones, What an elegant speech the Secretary of War gave us, was astonished to hear the sergeant burst into strong language. That hypocrite! exclaimed Jones and the shocked Leonidas answered him. And now began to fall the first chill upon their friendliness. The recruits were clean from vice, but the secretary's poison was at work, the sugar of self-pity he had given them to swallow, the false sentiment over themselves, the sick notion that they were objects of special sympathy, instead of stout young lads beginning life with about as many helps and hindrances as other stout young lads. "'Yes, he did say so,' declared Leonidas. "'Yes, he did say. He say he'd take care we were treated like gentlemen. He said he was behind us, and I guess he'd demand to back off his word.' "'Well,' said Jones, making a final try, "'I'll tell you,' and he laid a hand on the young man's shoulder. A man enlists to be a soldier, 
Nothing else. Not to be a gentleman, but just a soldier who obeys his orders, and nothing else. I obey the captain, and he obeys the colonel, and he obeys the commanding general of the department, and so it goes clean to the top, and we're all soldiers obeying the President of the United States. And if being a gentleman consists in making things as pleasant and easy for others as you can, why, the chap in the army who obeys best is the best gentleman. There's remedies for injustice, all right, but you keep thinking about your duties, and you'll not need to think about your remedies. Understand? Yes, sir, said Leonidas, without the faintest sign of comprehension. But the secretary is at the top, and it's right in him to say the top should never forget to recognize the unalienable rights of the bottom. He said he was behind us. Oh, go sit down and give us some of your upper register, cried Jones. Thus did friendliness give place to estrangement. The watermelons laid their heads together and assured Leonidas that he had acted in a proper and spirited manner. In Sergeant Jones they confided no longer, for which he was man enough to lay the blame where it belonged. He handsomely cursed the Secretary of War, but what good did that do? Arrived at Fort Chiricahua, the recruits fell into safe hands, though not perhaps entirely wise ones. The post-chaplain was an earnest preacher of the same denomination as the Reverend Tullius C. Smith, and delighted to surround Leonidas and his band with the same customs and influences which they had known at home. They were soon known throughout the post as the Shouters. This epithet came from their choir-singing, which was no whit lessened by their new and not wholly religious environment. If Sergeant Jones or Captain Stone had looked for insubordination as a result of the Secretary's speech, it was an agreeable disappointment. The recruits were punctual, they were clean, they were assiduous at drill, they showed intelligence, they were modeled, both as youths and soldiers, and nothing kept them from a more than common popularity in their various troops unless it was that they were a little too model for the taste of the average enlisted man. The parade ground was constantly melodious with their weekday practicing for Sabbath exercises. Sister Smith had sent them much music from home, and the post learned to admire Moses in Egypt, as arranged by Sister Mingory and interpreted by the upper register of Leonidas. One person there was whom the strains of psalmody, as they floated from the open windows of the schoolroom, did not wholly please. Captain Stone disapproved of his Gwendolen spending so much time alone with the Melodian and Leonidas. Almost as fittingly might a senator's wife sing duets with her coachman, and all the ladies of the post knew this, excepting Gwendolen but he could not forbid her, at least not yet. Was she not his bride of scarce three months? In this new army world, where he had brought her so far from everything that she had always known, how could he deprive her of one great resource, he who had cut her off from so many?
time would steadily teach her the conduct suitable for an officer's wife, and then of her own accord she would put the proper distance between herself and the enlisted men. "'It is so unexpected, Joshua,' she said once, "'such an unexpected joy to be able to keep a good influence around those poor boys.' "'What do you call them poor boys for?' inquired the captain. "'To come into so many temptations so far from home!' she exclaimed. "'They're not going to have you and the chaplain and the organ all their lives, Gwendolen. "'Now, Joshua, keep your moustache down. "'The Secretary of War. "'Don't swear so dreadfully, darling, don't!' "'And the bride stopped her lord's lips with her hand. "'I won't mention him any more,' she promised. "'I must run now, or I'll be late for practicing next Sunday's anthem with Leonidas Bateau.' Left on the porch of his quarters, the captain made the same remark about next Sunday's anthem that he had made about the Secretary of War, but Gwendolen, having departed, did not hear him, and soon from the open windows of the schoolhouse floated the chords of the melodeon with a chorus led by Cousin Xerxes and a solo on an upper register. Ah, little do I love this veil of tears. Would Gwendolen have been so eager to redeem some dried-up middle-aged sinner? I don't know. At any rate, in her solicitude for the spotless Leonidas, she was abreast with the advanced philanthropy which holds prevention better than cure. Of course, not even to the most evil-minded could scandal arise from any of this. But when you see a wife of nineteen playing the organ for a trooper of twenty-two, and a husband of forty-five constantly remarking that a man is always as young as he feels, why, then you are at no great distance from comedy, and the joke draws nearer when the wife is anxious that the trooper should not feel the want of his mother, and the trooper retains the limpid innocence of the watermelon. The ladies of the post tried to be indignant that an officer's wife should so much associate herself with enlisted men, but they could only laugh, and hush when the captain came by, and the men in barracks laughed, and hushed when the captain came by, and the poor captain knew it all. Meanwhile the melodeon played on, the watermelons lifted their harmless hymns, and in the heart of Leonidas the secretary's speech dwelled like honey, but like gall in the heart of the captain. Had Captain Stone dreamed what sweet familiarity the hymns were breeding, he, uh, but he did not dream, hence was his awakening all the more pronounced. The day it came had made an ill beginning with him. He had walked unexpectedly into the kitchen before breakfast, and found there his Chinaman putting a finishing crust on the breakfast rolls. He had never been aware of such a process. He had always particularly enjoyed the crust. The Chinaman had just reached the point where he withdrew the hot rolls from the oven and sprayed them suddenly with cold water from his mouth. 
there had ensued a dreadful time in the kitchen, and no rolls for breakfast, and no Chinaman for dinner, and even as late as five o'clock the captain's mustache had not completely flattened down. Leonidas should have observed this as he came up the captain's steps with a message from the chaplain for the captain's wife. They were waiting for her to come over and play the melodeon for Sunday's anthems. "'Is Sister Stone here?' Leonidas inquired. "'Who?' said the captain, rising from his chair, which fell backward with the movement. "'Is Sister Stone here?' repeated Leonidas mildly. "'The chaplain says—' You will meet the most conflicting accounts of the spot where Leonidas first landed on firm ground after leaving the captain's boot. The colonel's orderly, who was standing in front of the colonel's gate four houses farther up the line, deposed that he thought he heard a something, but didn't see what made it. Mrs. Phillips declared she was sitting on her porch two houses down the line, and it looked just like diving from a springboard. These were the only two disinterested witnesses. The afflicted Leonidas claimed that he had gone from the porch clean over the front gate, and Captain Stone said that he didn't know and didn't care, but that if the gate story was true, then he had projected one hundred and sixty pounds, forty measured feet, and felt younger than ever. The version which Jones gave has, to me, always seemed wholly satisfactory. "'Don't you go sitting up nights over it,' said Jones. "'Nobody'll never prove where he struck. "'But what I seen was the captain came raging out of his gate. "'He went over to the officers' club, "'and I knowed it was particular, "'for you could have stood a base of flowers on his moustache "'without spilling a drop. "'And next comes Leonidas a-flying by me a-screeching, "'The secretary shall hear this!' and I seen the mark on his pants, and he tells me, Hard brushing will remove it, I says to him, and he says, The secretary shall hear of it. And I says, Well, Leonidas, it sure ain't your upper register that's damaged. The secretary, says he, but I got tired. If you was figuring to be the captain's brother-in-law, I says, you should have broke it to him gently. 3. The Vibrations Spread and what did the afflicted Leonidas do now? Sunday's anthem was dashed from his mind. They waited for him, but he never came back, nor was the melodeon again played by Sister Stone. Leonidas, without waiting to brush off anything, hastened to his own troop commander, told of the insults to American manhood, and displayed the grievous traces upon his trousers. When his captain found that he was not demented, he meditated briefly and spoke. Bateau, this is unfortunate, but it seems to me out of military cognizance. Leonidas mentioned the Secretary of War for the third or fourth time, and asked permission to complain to the post commander. Think this over for a day, said his troop commander, and I'll see Captain Stone. On the next day, he resumed, uh, Captain Stone confirms every statement that you make, 
except uh, the distance. It was over the gate, repeated Leonidas, but I would feel just the same if it was not. The troop commander was wise. Ah, very well. You have my permission to make your complaint. Private Bateau stated his case in the adjutant's office at Fort Chiricahua. The post commander duly investigated the affair, and Private Bateau was duly informed that his complaint was deemed out of military cognizance. Private Bateau, thoroughly booked on the machinery, now appealed to the department commander. He called in no clerk to draft his grievance for him. With Cousin Xerxes to help, he wrote, Fort Chiricahua, A. T., November 30th, 1880, the Adjutant General, Department of Arizona, Whipple Barracks, A. T., through military channels. Sir, for the information of the Commanding General of the Department, I wish to report Captain Joshua Stone of E Troop, 4th Cavalry, for using brutal conduct toward me at 5 p.m., 26th instant, at which hour he insulted me with his foot, behaving like no officer and gentleman in a way I will not write down. All I did was ring a word our choir was waiting for Mrs. Stone to play like she always done on the melodium for church practice Wednesday afternoons and Saturday nights. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, Leonidas Bateau, Private, Troop I, Fourth Cavalry. This document Leonidas handed to the first sergeant of his troop, who took it with the daily morning report to the captain, who endorsed it, respectfully forwarded to the adjutant-general, Department of Arizona, through post commander. The facts in this case are as follows, and etc., and duly signed the endorsement, and forwarded it the next day to the post commander, who endorsed it, respectfully forwarded to the adjutant-general, Department of Arizona, Whipple Barracks, A.T., I find upon investigation, and so on, and I have cautioned Private Leonidas Bateau that he ought to be more guarded in his language when referring to an officer's wife, and I recommend that no further action be taken in this case. Do you perceive the wheels beginning to go round? The letter of Leonidas, thus twice endorsed and signed by the captain of his troop, and the colonel commanding Fort Chiricahua now flew forth and upward, directing its course duly to the headquarters of the Department of Arizona, and even while it was upon its way, a new song was heard among the enlisted men on all sides at the post. It was fitted to the tune of Stables. Its author was unknown, and it went something like this. Say, have you seen my sister? I guess that I must have missed her. I'll show you a handsome blister, and so on. It went something like that. Sing it, and you will see how glove-like it fits the tune. And it contributed nothing to the happiness of Leonidas. But it made him glad that nobody save Cousin Xerxes knew of the long, long letter which he had written to the Secretary of War and mailed outside the post. 
and now the wheels began to turn at Whipple Barracks, while Private Bateau was waiting for the Secretary of War to answer his private letter and stand behind him. The department commander knew all about the Secretary of War. Moreover, he was enlightened concerning this case by his favorite staff officer, Lieutenant Jimmy St. Michael of Kingsport, South Carolina. Jimmy received from a brother lieutenant at Fort Chiricahua an intimate and spirited account of the whole deplorable misadventure, describing Gwendolen at length and Captain Stone at length, and the melodeon and the choir practices, not omitting a sketch of Leonidas and Cousin Xerxes. This letter kept the young officers up until past midnight, for Jimmy gave them a choir practice upon his banjo, impersonating now Sister Stone and now Leonidas. But, as I've said, the commanding general of the department knew the Secretary of War, and therefore deemed a plentiful investigation into the affairs of Leonidas the wisest course. He would not accept the views of the post commander, as was his usual habit. There must be an inspector. Now, his inspector-general was off inspecting something at Fort Apache, and so, that time should not be lost, he summoned Jimmy St. Michael and directed him to proceed to Fort Chiricahua. Jimmy departed with a valise, a letter official to the colonel, a message unofficial to the same officer, and his banjo, which he rarely left behind him. With the solemnity proper to all inspectors, he arrived upon the scene of the tragedy, and not even the joy of the club could unbend him. He was implored to give at least, but he didn't saw the wood, that song which had left a trail of gaiety from Klamath and Bidwell to Meade and San Carlos. Jimmy remained deaf to everything but duty. His slim figure became every inch an inspector, his neat hair was severe, his black eyes almost funereal. He made many inquiries, he investigated everybody, and he seldom uttered any longer comment than, hmm. He knew how rare it is for an inspector to say more than this. His old friends would have thought him engaged to be married, or otherwise grievously changed for the worst, had he not, on the night his mission was ended, taken the cover off his banjo. He gave the second entirely original poem which the misfortunes of Leonidas had inspired. He sang it to a tune heard in a popular play, and here it is. Avor I am the popular secretary, oh, I am the popularest man in all the show. There were one or two or three more popular than me till I received my portfolio. George Washington, they say, was popular long ago. His name today is sometimes mentioned still, I know. But where do you think he'll be, if he's compared with me, when I resign my portfolio? The very day that I into the White House go, my friend shall see my gratitude is never slow, and chief of all their clan shall be the enlisted man, for he shall have my portfolio. 
Even Joshua smiled, and Joshua was a solemn man, not to speak of his delicate position regarding Leonidas. He sat up late, drank to the health of Jimmy St. Michael, and remarked that he doubted if Jimmy felt any younger than he did. But the hour for poor Leonidas to smile had not yet come. There was silence most unaccountable from the Secretary of War, and the encouragement given by having an inspector come several hundred miles received presently a rude shock. Jimmy St. Michael returned to Whipple Barracks and made a carefully solemn report to the commanding general. But at the end of it, seeing that the commanding general's solemnity was less careful, he ceased to be an inspector and said with his engaging Kingsport accent, General, did you ever put sugar on a raw oyster and try to swallow it? It can't be done, declared the general. I've known that since I was at the military academy. It can be done, sir, if you'll pardon my contradicting you. I did it myself on a bet at the military academy. Good Lord, said the general. What was it like? I realize, sir, that the combination does not belong in nature's plan any more than mixing politics with the United States Army. Ha-ha, went the general. Ha-ha, not in nature's plan. And he proceeded to drop the necessary lemon juice upon the secretary's luckless raw oyster. To poor Leonidas's original letter was now added a third duly dated endorsement, respectfully returned to the commanding officer, Fort Chiricahua, A.T. The commanding general approves of your action in this case. The provoking speech of Private Leonidas Batreau, Troop I, 4th Cavalry, on the occasion of his visiting the quarters of his troop commander, being considered sufficient grounds for the harsh treatment administered. This, with the signature of the assistant adjutant general, arrived at Fort Chiricahua, and was followed by a fourth endorsement, dated there and signed by the post adjutant, respectfully returned to the commanding officer, Troop I, 4th Cavalry, inviting attention to the second and third endorsements hereon, the contents of which will be communicated to Private Leonidas Bateau, Troop I, 4th Cav, by order of, and so on, and so on. The wheels of redress had turned, all the wheels, and ground out nothing. His troop commander sent for Leonidas, and read him the endorsements. Leonidas, being instructed by a guardhouse lawyer, demanded his papers, which were delivered to him, as was his right. These now went with his appeal to Washington. For Leonidas had written home to Sister Smith, who had written to a congressman, who had replied that he was ever for justice. Thus, with a long new letter from Leonidas to the Secretary of War, whose silence still remained unaccountable, did official tidings of the outrage to American manhood at length, through the Adjutant General's department, come to the man of the portfolio. Buttons were pressed, and clerks dispatched with messages, and there ensued a conference between the Congressman, the Adjutant General, the Secretary of War, and the Lieutenant General himself. The Congressman stated the case, 
the secretary was quite uneasy and talked a great deal taking care not to express a single idea but the lieutenant-general was quite easy and talked only thus much called her his sister got kicked i should think so general this is good in you to help us said the secretary with symptoms of relief i did not wish to reach this conclusion without your corroboration thus ended the conference the original letter of leonidas with its four endorsements pasted on it and making quite a budget now started its return course bearing a fifth endorsement containing the secretary of war's opinion signed by one of the assistant adjutants general it travelled through the back channels that you know passing whipple barracks and reaching the hungry unsated leonidas many weeks after all traces had vanished from his trousers during these weeks his life had been made a sorry thing by that song about the blister not even the sympathy of cousin xerxes could sweeten his embittered days they were wholesome for him to be sure they began to cure him of being a watermelon they even gave him gradually a just estimate of the secretary's speech at mcpherson and he grew into a strapping young trooper with many of the trooper's habits in moderation the only profane language that he used was in connection with the secretary of war whose tricky official language in his endorsement had utterly dodged his promise to stand behind him but leonidas could not comfortably live in a place where everybody remembered how he had as jones put it run around showing his pants he took his discharge at the first opportunity and became an eminent cowboy in the neighborhood with a man's full strength in his sinews and a man's anger silent in his heart the hour for him to smile had not yet come four the energy is once again transmitted you will doubtless have perceived the flaw in the secretary's conduct before i can point it out to you he should have written a letter to poor leonidas with his own hand it might not have been the easiest kind of letter for you or for me to compose but for a statesman of the secretary's ripeness it ought to have been the affair of five minutes a few words of deep sympathy a few words of hot indignation a few words of sincere regret that he had not yet had time to remove all the obstructions which a despotic tradition set between him and the enlisted man and best of all a few words of promise to see leonidas on his coming tour through the southwest such a letter as this would have made leonidas proud and happy and comforted forever the tingling sensations that pierced him whenever he thought of his final choir practice but as leonidas seemed no longer of any possible use to the secretary the secretary forgot all about him it was not understood at the ranch where leonidas was now employed why he so eagerly followed the printed chronicle of the secretary's approach indeed had you asked him to explain it himself i doubt if he could have done so the needle seeks the pole but why he would pore over the tucson paper and learn how the secretary had visited san antonio and spoken to the soldiers there 
how he had paused at El Paso and spoken to the soldiers there, how he had visited Bayard, Bowie, and Grant, and spoken at all three, and how he was expected on the train from Benson on the very next day, and would get off at Chiricahua Station and drive to the post, how he would return thence and proceed to Lowell Barracks on his way to Yuma and Los Angeles. All this program was of natural interest to the officers and men at Fort Chiricahua, but it seemed of unnatural interest to Leonidas. Concerning his absorption, the other cowboys passed comments among themselves, but made none to him, because he had altogether ceased to be a watermelon. The smoke of a train in that country is to be sighted from a great distance, and for some time before you can see the train, because the smoke is very black and the train goes very slowly. Also, the dust of a horseman or a vehicle can be descried from afar. As the smoke of the secretary's train approached the Chiricahua station, the dust of a seemly military escort drew near from the direction of the post, and the dust of a galloping cowboy came along the road from the ranch where Leonidas was employed. By the platform of the station was assembled a little group of citizens hoping for a speech, and by the time the train made its deliberate arrival complete, the escort was arrayed with due military precision, the ambulance was at hand nearby for the secretary to step into when he should feel ready, and a captain with two lieutenants was preparing to salute the eminent statesman as he alighted from the car. He returned their greeting, and as he stepped forward to the end of the platform, from which elevation he desired to say a few cordial and timely words to those waiting in the surrounding dust, the cowboy entered the ticket office, but came out again on the platform, which was natural, since the ticket window was at the moment closed. The sight of the secretary produced an immediate effect upon the appearance of the cowboy. He seemed to grow larger. "'Friends and soldiers,' said the secretary, "'I am always moved when I see an enlisted man.' And even with the words he was moved conspicuously through the air, and came down in the dust in a seated position. The leg of Leonidas had grown exceedingly muscular. Before anybody had regained his senses, the cowboy was seen to dash away, shouting on his horse across the railroad track, and pursuit did not overtake him. I am not sure if this was the fault of Captain Stone or Sergeant Jones, both of whom were in the chase. It gravely damaged the secretary's visit for him, but rendered it for many others a memorable success, especially for Captain Stone and Sergeant Jones. And Jones made so bold as to remark to Stone, I think, if the captain pleases, that the secretary won't never stand behind Leonidas like Leonidas has stood behind him. It is a great thing for a man to feel young, replied Captain Stone. His mustache was flat, smiling, and serene. Nobody knows whether or not the secretary considered this mixing of politics and the army to be in nature's plan. End of chapter 3